Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Today's show topic is, what are the keys to successful prostate cancer detection, treatment, and enhanced patient quality of life? An interview with Dr. Mark Schultz, MD, of Prostate Oncology Specialist. Mark and I go, or Dr. Schultz and I go way back. Um, 2009 is the first time I ever interviewed you, it seems like. <laughs> and I was so happy to find him because I, I'm in the integrative medicine world, so I'm between traditional and maybe extreme alternative. And I wanted to find somebody who could do the least amount of invasive therapy, but get the best medical treatment. And so that's the patient clientele I had was always looking for alternatives. And so, in fact, a patient of mine um, or a colleague that I interviewed told me about Dr. Schultz. And ever since then, um, be truthful, I, I just did this the other day. I send all my patients down here that have prostate cancer, at least for a second opinion. Like, for example, I just had somebody with metastatic prostate cancer. And because when people get on the can cancer conveyor belt, sometimes they don't they don't get another opinion and I know that if you recommend traditional a traditional approach you're also thinking of watchful waiting you're thinking of the least invasive possible and etc etc so thank you Dr. Schultz for being on the show today it's uh, it's a pleasure and we're going to talk about your your wonderful book that came out thanks for having me Kurt and like you say we go way back and it's been a joy to see the way you care for people and really go the extra mile to try and get people to the best treatment and uh, we we really want people to get good outcomes and that was the impetus behind writing this book well I always feel so good about sending patients here and people go you send your people to Los Angeles and first of all they don't you don't have to stay down here for all the therapy that's the first <laughs> thing but they I have not had one and I'm not saying this is a plug because I'm in the office but uh, I have not had one patient come back and not thank me and that's what I tell somebody looks at me like kind of cross-eyed I go truthfully I listen to my patients and if my patients haven't come back and said something negative and they're positive and it makes my life easier and I think you get better care then I'm gonna push you to do that so congratulations it's a, it's a as you know we have a very narrow expertise just in this one key area of prostate cancer and it's a sensitive area of our bodies and it certainly does lend itself to having uh, experts that have decided to devote themselves just to that one thing because there's a lot of different uh, ways that prostate cancer pre uh, presents itself. So let's talk about your book, The Key to Prostate Cancer. <coughs> 30 experts explain 15 stages of prostate cancer. That part scared me for a second. <laughs> so why did you write this book? You, you had your other book. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Invasion of the Prostate, prostate Snatchers. Yeah, the, uh, the first book was a sort of a conversation between myself and a patient who had decided to do active surveillance and um, did extremely well with that, even in a time when it wasn't widely accepted. And it also allowed us to introduce some of the, the medical oncology concepts. We're not urologists, we're medical oncologists. Uh, and those being to, to target treatment according to the different types of prostate cancer. And, and I thought it would be good to have a follow-up uh, of, well, let's define these different types of prostate cancer. And so we created a, a self-administered quiz for patients so that they can answer an eight-question quiz and determine which of these five major stages they fit into. And then once they have that information, they can go and look at information that we've written about each of those five stages and find out 
of which of the three substages that they're in. And you can start to then talk apples with apples rather than this confusion of men uh, being faced, forced to look at information from all the stages and try and decide which of those treatments is for them. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind when you said that was then that the patient has to get the information to plug it into the to the Precisely. stage description. Very good point. So how do they get that? I mean, everybody's yeah. afraid to get their stuff, or they get a big CD-ROM, and you know, it's like, what do they do? That's our first chapter: is how do you access your medical chart, which is fairly straightforward. You ask for a copy, and then there are four key areas that have to be looked at: the grade of the cancer, assuming someone's been diagnosed, the um, that where the PSA is, um, what the physical, you know, the digital finger exam shows and then scan results. And all this is explained in the book, how you access that basic information, and then you can feed it into the quiz, which is online uh, available at, uh, I believe, at prostateoncology.com uh, and also at pcri.org, uh, where people can go in and uh, answer the quiz online or get it in a book. And, uh, and then you're talking about, well, what specific type of prostate cancer and that eases so much confusion there's just so much trouble with people figuring out what type of prostate cancer they have so this brings up another point when you say cancer to a patient and i think sometimes the reason they run into a therapy is because they think they have to do something right now and i always tell people you know you a couple weeks a month you got to, to research this because if you got to go in tomorrow you're going to be probably dead anyway <laughs> well, so your, your prostate point, cancer, explain you're, that. You've, got, you, you've been doing this a long time and you understand the real essentials of what this is all about. And the problem is, is one of the reasons for confusion is that what we call prostate cancer is so distinctly different from every other cancer. So distinctly less malignant than every other cancer. But it's very hard to tell people, you know, you've got a mild cancer. It just does not compute. And so one of the biggest struggles we have is to uh, calm people down long enough to start thinking and start taking control of their situation. They, they want to jump into a treatment right away. So, and that's why it just happened to me yesterday. I mean, and again, there was, it was, there were uh, gentlemen that were bringing in their fo had foreign, they didn't understand the language totally well, and they wanted alternative to the nth degree. And then, and then it was the other extreme. They were faced with not a lot of hope, but pretty radical stuff. And so I, says, I said, please go down and see them. Just take one visit. If, if that's the right traditional conventional approach, and you can come up here and do it, and you can feel confident about it. Right. But if not, you're going to get some kind of traditional alternative that's, that's reasonable. And then at least you have something to go back on. But you always have time. So that, I run that in almost every cancer well, at the no, time I thing. I interject here is that about half of the men that are diagnosed every year in the United States with prostate cancer have a form or a type of prostate cancer that can be safely monitored without any immediate treatment. And uh, so of the 160,000 men diagnosed every year, about 80,000 of them are eligible for something we call active surveillance. And uh, that's a shock to a lot of people that something called cancer can be monitored, but this is a mainstream proven, uh, you know, FDA approved uh, across the board standard treatment to monitor it, not treat it. So what a shame for a man to run into some kind of an unnecessary radiation surgery or hormone treatment that they never needed in the first place, which, as you know, has all kinds of potential for collateral damage. So you've kind of answered, what did you want the reader to get out of this book? Well, 
what I wanted to do was bring clarity to these subtypes or different types of prostate cancer because the the problem these days is information overload. There is so much information out there, but how can a patient select which information applies to them personally? And by helping patients understand their stage, and then the book goes on and provides educational information about each uh, treatments for each stage, stage-specific treatment. So they'll be reading information that's targeted right at their type of cancer rather than have to learn about all the different types. So I, I want to emphasize this point. They're still going to get shocked that they have pro that I have prostate cancer. So would you say it's reasonable to say, hey, you got a good solid month to, to take your time? Or how, how would you say that? Because I got to... There are excellent studies out showing that even treatment delays of 6 to 12 months have no impact on long-term cure rates. It's, uh, it's very counterintuitive. Everyone thinks that cancer has got to be done yesterday. Not prostate cancer. It's a very That's huge. Even, even the bad ones are really slow growing compared to other cancers. So the message is you can take your time, yep. get your, your data, and plug it into this book. So how easy was it to get 30 experts, and why did you need 30? Well, I thought one of the things with prostate cancer being so controversial, uh, you know, everyone wonders, well, what is this doctor selling? What, you know, what is, and I thought it would inject a lot more cre uh, credibility if there were multiple, these are all you know, very renowned academicians with amazing credentials that have been doing this a long time. And uh, by having multiple voices participating in providing this information rather than just one guy's viewpoint, I thought would help because there's just a, everyone's screaming that they know how to treat prostate cancer and there's oftentimes little basis to those claims. So I thought it would lend a lot more credibility and then of course prostate cancer's gotten so big and uh, so unmanageable, how can anyone be an expert in every aspect of prostate cancer? It's really not possible. So we were very privileged to, to uh, find these doctors and I'd say where do they come from? Uh, our practice, maybe the largest practice, you know, specializing in prostate cancer in the, in the whole country. And so we utilize a lot of these specialists for our patients. And so when, uh, when we approach them after having long-term relationships with many, with many of these experts, um, I, I don't think I had anyone. I had one doctor that actually decided not to write a chapter out of the 30 or more that we invited. We are talking to Dr. Mark Schultz, Medical Director of Prostate Oncology Specialists in Marina Del Rey, California, about his uh, book, The Key to Prostate Cancer. So I wanted to go over, before I get into things that, that really excite me, like that I get all the time about, you know, risk factors and testing. Why did you come up, well, all right, so why did you have, there's five stages of prostate cancer, and I think the old school was there was low, medium, high risk, relapse disease, and metastatic disease, and you came up with the Stare, uh -huh. stare system. I thought it was like Star Wars or something. Like I'm looking up and thinking. So, so that's an acronym for five different shades of blue. You know, we think of pink for breast cancer and blue for prostate. And the uh, the five shades are uh, the acronym Stare helps you: sky, teal, azure, indigo, and royal. And so by assigning colors rather than scary terminology like high risk and relapsed and, and we, fi we find that battling fear is one of the worst problems because people get too frightened. They get brain freeze and they can't logically work through the, what they need to do to get the right treatment. So we wanted to diffuse that fear and just create a sort of a non-judgmental name for these different stages. Okay.
All right, that helps. So I want to get into um, some of the basics of prostate cancer. Is prostate cancer increasing in incidence or decreasing? And if it's increasing, is it be because of better or earlier diagnostic efforts? It's probably the reason that there is some increase is that people are living longer. And so it's a disease of aging. And as our population, men are living now into their 80s and some to their 90s, then we're diagnosing more prostate cancer. Uh, we are diagnosing it much earlier and we're curing it much better. Uh, one thing I'd like to comment on, because this impacts on the uh, controversy about PSA screening. So up till recently, we were diagnosing more and more prostate cancer because people were living longer. There's been a recent decline in diagnosis of prostate cancer because of uh, government uh, suggestion that maybe you don't need to do PSA testing. And so we aren't catching as many early stage cases as we used to. Uh, that can be good because some of the early stage cases don't even need to be diagnosed. But it can be bad because some of them do need to be diagnosed and when they're missed it becomes a problem. So there is, uh, it's a dynamic thing. You have uh, perhaps less men being diagnosed in 2018 than in 2016 or 2015, but the type of men that are being diagnosed tend to have a worse form of the disease because without PSA screening, the disease advances more before it comes to medical attention. Would you say, because it isn't, would you say we're winning the war on prostate cancer in the context of, it doesn't mean we're winning, to me we're winning the war if we could watchfully wait somebody, watchfully wait if that's a term, <laughs> and not do some invasive therapy and they had a long functional life but they were just being monitored. That right. to me is winning the war versus eradicating it. Absolutely. So anytime, because this is such a sensitive area of men's bodies and so many of the standard treatments, even to this day, surgery and radiation can ruin a man's sexual function, his normal urinary function, that the identification of the men that don't need that treatment is a huge, huge upside. So we're talking about tens of thousands of men that can be spared from having surgery or radiation. That's a huge upside and it is not impacting their survival at all. They're living normal life expectancy. So, so that, that has been a giant advance, but there's advances across the board, just like you see the amazing uh, move that we've seen in technology over the last 10 to 15 years. The same thing has happened with medical technology. So, so the, the treatments are less uh, damaging, they are more effective, we know how to, to tailor the treatments better so that the men with the more serious cancers get the, the more intense treatments, uh, and overall outcomes are much, much improved over even what we had 10 years ago. Are there high-risk populations for prostate cancer? Or if you had to define them? Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, the American? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, our American diets obviously contribute, and, and African-American uh, are at a higher risk, and so are people that have a family history. But the cancers themselves, when they are diagnosed in these high-risk populations, are no worse. In other words, if these men undergo routine screening, they'll say start PSA testing maybe at age 40 instead of age 45 or 50. Start a little earlier in these high-risk populations. But uh, if a prostate cancer is identified, it has the same implications that it does for someone that doesn't have a family history. or It's, it's no more dangerous if it's managed properly. What are the, some of the lifestyle risk factors that increase prostate cancer risk that are simple to change for people? Well, I don't know how simple it is to change because we've no. got such a weight problem in this country, but that would probably be the number one thing is that if we, if we um, well, if you look at the, you know, the, uh, Asia where they really can't afford to eat all the animal protein that, that uh, we're doing here in the United States, they have 
ten times lower incidence of prostate cancer. And then when those Asians move to the United States, start eating the American diets, they start accelerating in the diagnosis of prostate cancer. So if you feed it, prostate cancer will come, is, mm -hmm. is a, uh, it would be a reasonable saying. And so if we can somehow back off of our, you know, our heavy, um, you know, Protein, uh, animal protein-laden diets, we could radically reduce the amount of prostate cancer being diagnosed. So that's one big risk factor. Any other ones for you, or is that the... A, a um, that's the biggest one you can change. The um, I personally believe that fitness and uh, exercise also right. will have an impact in reducing. And then the common ones, uh, you know, you think of the, the smoking problems and the, all these other lifestyle things that we know we shouldn't be doing, but people have a hard time controlling. You know, I share, I share with people sometimes, like the person with the metastatic disease, you know, you, because I've sent two patients down here with metastatic disease and they're still alive today, six, seven years later, and I thought, when I sent them down there, the one was a 600 PSA and then it was 1200 and they're, they're still living. And I was like, so if someone has metastatic disease, I try and give them some hope, mm -hmm. you know, but um, do, it, with people with metastatic disease, I mean, spreading about the body, I mean, I guess they're harder to control, but you manage a lot of those kind of yeah, people. prostate cancer has, uh, first, the treatments that are available, thankfully, are much more effective than, say, what we have for lung cancer and pancreas cancer and those devastating uh, conditions. It's easier to monitor because we can check if the treatment is working by monitoring PSA levels, and that's unique for prostate cancer. And when prostate cancer spreads, thankfully, it, it's very, very, very rare for it to spread to places like the uh, liver or the lung or the brain, which is such a, a vulnerable area of the body. You can see bone metastasis, but it turns out that our bones are quite tolerant of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people tend to live many years, even if the disease is spread, which is one of the unique aspects of prostate cancer. Yeah, that's been very, that's been an aha moment for me. And I was like, I, now I can give hope to somebody with that. I mean, if it's another kind of cancer, usually it's like. Yes, you may be uh, looking at six to 12 to 18 months and, and uh, it's just absolutely devastating. How that's why we're, we're so afraid of that word cancer is we, right. we hear about those. How do you know when it's a dangerous, fast growing prostate cancer versus the run of the mill? <laughs> So the three things that we worry about in the quote dangerous cancers are uh, number one, if the um, if it has spread or if there are metastases, that's that is proof that it is potentially dangerous. Uh, number two, if their uh, resistance has been uh, documented to the most common treatment, which is a type of hormone blockade, that's that's a very dangerous thing. And then the third thing is just uh, an acceleration or a rapid increase in PSA and. Uh, all three of those things suggest a potentially dangerous prostate cancer. Remember, a dangerous prostate cancer means more likely than not, you're just going to have to have more treatment. It doesn't always mean that there's going to be a shorter survival because there's so many effective treatments. Uh, so when we use the word dangerous in the prostate cancer world, we always have to put that little caveat that it's much better to have a dangerous prostate cancer than an undangerous any other type of cancer. I want to talk about PSAs for a minute because, well, you said maybe screening at 40 or 45. I mean, I do it at 50, but I mean, right. you know, 40 and 45 is very reasonable. Well, certainly if there's a family history right. or with our, um, with the African-Americans, uh, it would be very reasonable to start at age 40 with those people. So one of the things I've learned from you because you do the color Doppler ultrasound and I, and I was ignorant of this, you know, so I, I share with people, I think it's the rule of 10, if you have an 80 cc volume prostate which you can measure 
with the, the color Doppler, a skilled person, mm -hmm. then a normal PSA for that person, if they had BPH, would be um, divided by 10, would be like 8-ish. Correct. And I learned that from one of your, the patients you sent me, and it's always stuck in my mind to reassure people, and that's why I say they will do it the first visit. Yeah. So we have that out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it makes the PSA a more accurate test when you know how big the prostate is. Uh, because men's prostates can vary, the smallest in the practice is probably 10 cc's, and the largest uh, prostate in the, uh, in the practice is over 300 cc's, and that man's PSA runs in the 20s, and he doesn't have cancer. So the, the, um, to get your PSA into context based on how big the gland is, normal is about 40 for a, maybe a 60-year-old man is normal is about 40, cubic centimeters, but they range all over the place, and PSA will change as a result. So, staying on color Doppler for a second, because, you know, most doctors don't do it, and so they wouldn't know what size the, right. the prostate is, unless, and so they yeah, would... The other way to do it, uh, just so we don't just toot only our own horn, is the new MRIs right. that are out. I uh, can also tell patients how uh, how enlarged the gland is and give a context for the PSA. Now, do you have you have to have a certain amount of skill to do the color Doppler? Not you have everybody to have just quite a bit of experience, right, okay. actually. And uh, I think one reason that it's not as widely uh, available is that most practices don't have a large enough prostate cancer population. You know, your your usual urologist may see you know one or two cases a week, and we'll see you know twenty five or thirty a day. So. So we have a, a huge opportunity to you know, refine and hone our skills. So I always have to ask this because when you're in integrative medicine, the, the thing is the biopsy is going to spread my cancer. So I don't care how many times I ask you this question, mm -hmm. <laughs> you probably get it asked too. Yeah. So tell about biopsies spreading cancer cells, increasing risk of cancer, and then the second part will be how do you know when to get a biopsy and get the least amount of pokes possible? Right. So. So far, well, over a million men get these 12 core random biopsies every year in the United States. So they, they, you know, they jab the prostate a dozen times and looking for cancer because they don't know where it is in the gland. So they run the needle all over the gland. And it's, it's a very unpleasant procedure uh, and it does carry risks of severe infections. About one in 50 men ends up being hospitalized with, with a serious infection. So. Biopsies uh, used to be the only way to find prostate cancer, and so it was understandable that people were put through that when, in a time when we thought every cancer was life-threatening and in a time when we had no other alternatives. But now we have uh, imaging, as we mentioned, color Doppler and MRI, and so we, we've been on a rampage to try and convince people to hold off on those biopsies and, and to do an imaging study first to see if there's any cancer present. The imaging studies, especially the MRIs, have gotten good enough now. They're more accurate than a biopsy. If an abnormality is detected, then you can target the abnormality, the spot. So you don't have to jab a dozen needles into the gland anymore. You can get away with just one or two aimed at the spot, and that will give you the answers as to whether the spot is cancer or not. In terms of it spreading cancer, the with so many biopsies being done for so long, um, and you know, like I said, a million men a year getting uh, these random biopsies for the last 20, 25 years, I'm pretty confident that we would uh, have clear evidence that it's spreading cancer if that was occurring. Uh, there's just been too much water under the bridge for that too. So it seems that the men who are at risk for spread are the ones that are, who are at risk for spread even prior to the biopsy. Mm -hmm. 
and that the men that haven't spread at the time of biopsy are at no increased risk for uh, spreading it with a biopsy. So no matter how you get a biopsy, it should be guided, correct? Absolutely. All right. And so this is another area you, you share with me. So you said somewhere between two and four pokes is reasonable, whether you're doing a color Doppler biopsy mm -hmm. by a skilled person or the MRI. And you right. said that because these MRI things are popping up all over the place, that some of them just do 12 anyway because... Yeah, and some of them are still in their le learning curves. Right. So it's, it's good to try and find a, you know, an established center that has been doing this for a while and has built up, uh, has practiced on other people first. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, so I'm glad there's a lot of centers popping up because this is such a better alternative than the old random biopsy. But we do have to realize there is a learning curve and, and patients that are considering uh, getting any kind of uh, biopsy should try and seek out the centers that have been doing this a long time. Well, I've told my patients, ask the radiologist or whoever's doing it, how many times are you going to poke me? <laughs> you know, and yes. then and say, lim you know, say, yes. well, it should be right. a couple. Right. And if, the, and if the radiologist wants to do more than three or four, then probably find a new radiologist. <laughs> you got it. All <laughs> oh, right. Um, we are talking to Dr. Mark Schultz, medical director of a prostate oncology specialist, and we're talking about his new book, The Key to Prostate Cancer, and then other things that, that I think I get asked all the time with patients. So you, you said that the radical prostatectomy is dead, pretty much. Well, I wish it was dead. I, I, I personally, as a prostate expert, have not referred anyone for an operation of radical prostatectomy for a couple of years. I am uh, not the universal voice. As you know, most doctors that treat prostate cancer happen to be surgeons. And so... Uh, Still. Oh, yeah. And I would say that uh, I have come across surgeons that have hung up their scalpels. They've actually seen the light. They've saw, seen the, the trail of woe and tears that these operations have left behind. And they have stopped doing radical prostatectomy. But they're in a minority. Most of these most of these doctors have have aspired all their lives to do surgery and their training programs are, are so intensive that they really I don't think they can see clearly and realize that the other treatments are a lot less toxic and a lot more effective but uh, so I don't believe there's a place for surgery anymore but I certainly am not a um, representative of your average doctor treating prostate cancer so with prostate cancer being a multi billion dollar industry how does a patient keep from being over-treated? Well, this is when you asked me initially, why did I write the book? And I think uh, knowledge as to what's going on in this field, getting a handle on the type of prostate cancer that people have, what are the reasonable treatment options for that type? So and when you walk into a doctor's office and the doctor realizes that you have you are conversant in these issues and you understand some of the pros and cons of the different types of treatment that would be appropriate for your stage of cancer, uh, then I think that you're in a much better position to have a, a conversation at a higher level with these docs and, and to be treated more as an equal rather than as someone that just needs to be told what to do. When you put someone on hormone blockading, blockade therapy um, and their sexual function goes down, when you stop the treatment and cure the cancer, do you see that come back up again? Yes, although men should be advised if any of them are facing taking hormone treatment that they need to be on some sort of um, sustaining treatment such as Cialis or Viagra and so that they keep getting erections even while they're on hormone treatment, which is a, a hard proposition because most men on hormone treatment have a low sex drive. And, but they're 
needs to be an ongoing treatment so that um, so that atrophy doesn't set in, right. that can be irreversible. Uh, but if men uh, are on appropriate maintenance programs, then when they recover their normal testosterone levels, they'll recover their sexual So, so that really is a use it or lose it. It is a use it. Right. I, I, I didn't I realize that. guys have been lying about that to girls for years. So but <laughs> in this particular situation, it is actually the truth. Yeah. All right. So we come up to an area that I, I've... Um, you know, I'm in the anti-aging world and the hormone world, and and so, you know, process. You know, you you get put on testosterone or androgen suppressive therapy, so therefore testosterone is bad for prostates. But you are now replacing testosterone in people who have prostate cancer. Correct? Can you put that yeah. in your context? Yeah. So it sounds counterintuitive that a man who's been previously diagnosed with prostate cancer may be able to safely take testosterone. And the, um, uh, the actually, it's not scientifically controversial anymore. There have been so many studies done looking very closely at this that uh, men that need hormone treatment for prostate cancer only need it for a specific period of time. And then after that hormone treatment stops, there's no advantage to continuing it any longer. And the men that are left with low testosterone levels, they are at liberty to take some testosterone to restore normal levels and it will not impair their survival and it will certainly give them a chance at improving their quality. So interestingly, suppressing testosterone and whatever else you give the person during the deprivation therapy or blockade therapy, I mean, are you killing the cancer? Yeah, yeah. And then once so it's what, killed... What happens is that after a period of time, depending on the situation, say six to 18 months of treatment, you've really squeezed the, the, uh, the sponge dry of any additional value that you can get out of the hormone treatment. So studies have shown that if you go longer and longer, let's say you extend to two years or three years, you get no additional curative effect. So at some point, you reach the point of diminishing returns and you should stop the hormone treatment. And if you still have low testosterone levels, you should uh, replenish them. <laughs> That's it. It's almost counterintuitive, but I'm happy. I mean, that it's, uh, you it's, know, it's, really it's a good, good thing to share for my it, patients. It is counterintuitive, and uh, uh, fortunately, there's been a lot of money spent doing studies in this, and so it's it's not really a uh, debatable issue anymore. So I know you're, um, you know, a, a big advocate of strength training. So talk about that when somebody's going through the woes of feeling like they're all flabby and fatigued, and they're getting hormone therapy. You. So this is a, the number one of probably the three major issues that men with low testosterone, the men on hormone therapy, what they face, and that's uh, shrinkage of their muscles. Uh, so testosterone helps men maintain larger muscle bulk, and when you take testosterone away, the muscles can shrink by 50%. And people that experience that loss of muscle uh, feel terrible. They feel tired, fatigued, uh, weak, uh, they have trouble concentrating, and this terrible problem that can be caused by low testosterone is relatively straightforward in how we can compensate, and that is with resistance training or, or lifting weights two or three times a week for 30 to 60 mi minutes. And faithful adherence to a program like that will help men feel quite normal during the hormone treatment. With fatigue, does it help with hot flashes? Does not help with hot flashes. Does not help with, uh, with the uh, loss of libido, unfortunately. Right but it's very, very good at helping people keep their strength and their normal energy. So I always show, you know, when I have a prostate cancer patient, you know, Ornish's work. So what is the kind of general diet recommendations do you give for uh, a patient? Because of how serious it is, we've 
gotten away from, you know, these men that have, as I mentioned, half of the newly diagnosed men are in the sky, the sky uh, stage of prostate cancer, which is harmless. It doesn't spread, doesn't need treatment. And in the old days, we used to use a diagnosis of prostate cancer to motivate better lifestyle, you know, telling them now it's time to get on a diet and exercise. But we realized that that was almost, uh, that was being dishonest with these patients because they, their main risk of death is not from prostate cancer, but from cardiovascular issues. So if they want to get motivated to eat right and exercise, it should be due to a realization that they're going to reduce their risk of stroke, heart attack, and Alzheimer's disease. They're not going to live any longer from prostate cancer because they're not going to die of prostate cancer. Well, in that way, then, I don't know if you've ever been to Ornish's site, but on his site, he has the research in his one diet program. I always go to prostate, but it's got heart disease, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, all period, and actually telomeres have increased mm -hmm. on his, his plant-based program. So, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, it's very effective, and when you get into the more serious types of prostate cancer, uh, I, with my own eyes, have seen stabilization and even declines in PSA levels just with diet alone. So it's a very powerful intervention. Obviously, it's hard to motivate people to make these radical lifestyle changes where they'll go to a uh, purely vegetarian, purely vegan type of uh, eating program, but it works. It's effective. Um, how does somebody, let's close by, how does somebody pick out a good prostate cancer doc? Well, I don't know. You probably would be able to answer that question. I just sent them here, so that's easy I, yeah, for me. I don't, I don't have to, um, to, to face that problem, but um, I think it, one thing this book will help people with is by understanding that these five different types of prostate cancer are very different. So you have ranging from harmless to life-threatening and then everything in between. So for a, someone that has a very advanced type of prostate cancer, it's a no-brainer. You need a medical oncologist. For someone that has the sky or the harmless type of prostate cancer, I think any competent urologist uh, can manage those patients. For the teal, which is where it's just sort of over the fringe where you know you need to get some treatment, uh, one would be thinking maybe some experienced radiation treatment, would uh, experienced radiation therapist might be appropriate. So, uh, you know, we of course bill ourselves as a jack of all trades and, and uh, as medical oncologists, since we don't have we don't do these treatments. We don't give radiation. We don't give surgery. We feel that we're able to stand back and be a little more unbiased in the allocation of therapy. So I think it is advantageous to see a medical oncologist. The problem is there aren't that many that specialize in prostate cancer. Well, it's easy. It's an easy plane flight. LAX, you just fly into LAX. And I tell people, I tell you, I say, take the 9 o'clock flight, you'll be down there, you can have an 11 o'clock appointment, and then you'll be out by 1 o'clock, and you can be back at four, on the 4 o'clock flight, and you're home. So, we, <laughs> so we I actually have quite a few patients flying in every day at LAX. We are quite close to LAX. I know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. So um, how do potential patients get in touch with you? Um, yeah, how do patients get in probably, touch with you? Probably our website, prostateoncology.com, would be excellent. Um, the... Um, my office manager, Joanna, can be reached directly, uh, just joanna at prostateoncology.com. Email her directly would be the two easiest things, and um, we're easy online. All you have to do is Google prostate oncology, and I think we come up number one. How about, um, let's say someone is being treated somewhere else and they, and they want to get educated. Isn't the PRI, the Prostate um, Cancer, Cancer Research, Research Institute. Institute, tell a little about that. Yeah, so... Uh, my ex-partner, Dr. Steven Strom, and I realized that there was a, just a crying need for education uh, for prostate cancer patients. And the, uh, so we created this nonprofit uh, with a very nice grant from the Daniel Freeman uh, Hospital Foundation, uh, 
close to 20 years ago. And uh, so the Peace Right uh, is a uh, you know 501c3 nonprofit educational foundation uh, supported by uh, charitable donations, and uh, puts on two conferences a year. Has a very robust website. Um, we have helpline counselors. People can call the PCRI directly and and uh, get uh, some education about the different types of prostate cancer. A newsletter and. Um, it's basically a um, you know something that's been very close to my heart for many years to try and get the word out about state-of-the-art prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So the uh, website is pcri.org. And how do people get the book The Key to Prostate Cancer? At this time, I think it's probably easiest to go through our website, prostateoncology.com. Uh, it will be on Amazon. We Amazon. We hope within uh, thirty to sixty days. And how long has it been out? It's basically coming out this week. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, people don't realize when I do these interviews, I'm actually asking for me <laughs> because I want to be able to answer patients' questions. So I always like to go to someone who knows a heck of a lot more than me. So I appreciate everything you all do. I mean, I really do from the bottom of my heart because I, I don't mind, you know, we're in an alternative practice and so I want people to have their option for alternative, but I don't want them to go over the edge and push away good traditional treatment. And I think you give me that that blend. And so yeah, it's, it's a great relief for me. Thank you for your kind words and, and your support through the years. Uh, we also believe that it's, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all world and that there's a lot of lifestyle things that are very powerful. I think it's magnified in prostate cancer because it, thankfully it's a relatively slow-growing process and I think that makes it much more amenable to dietary and lifestyle changes than many of the other cancers. Uh, uh, so it, it has a, there's a big payoff and so why limit ourselves to just one approach or the other but to use what's available through modern medicine in the more traditional sense and then the, and the alternative resources as well. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Schultz, for spending time with me today, and I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. You'll be able to go to stayinghealthytoday.com, and I'll have a summary of this and then the link to uh, Prostate Oncology Specialist. This also get, it'll be in iTunes for those of you who want to listen to it on your, your phone. You can do that. And until next time, stay and be well.